everybody. It is Toddy Funk, and this is the Toddy Funk Show. And today, everybody, I have, man, one of the dopest drummers to ever sit behind a kit. Um, you guys, I don't know, you guys, well, this is going to be good because I first found out about this cat back in the day. And I'm not going to give it away right now, but we'll get into the story. But everybody, Give a great Toddy Funk show welcome to the man, the myth, the legend, Zorro. What's up, my man? Man, glad to be here with you, Toddy. Just thank you for that warm, beautiful introduction. Uh, makes me feel very happy uh, <laughs> to be on your show. Uh, so thank you for that great honor. Well, Good man, to be with you, my brother. Yeah, I appreciate you, man. It's 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 an honor to have you on the show, man. Because you know, um, you know, it's it's been. You know, it's been a while, you know, since we've last seen each other. And for those of you that don't know, uh, Zorro did live here in Nashville, Tennessee for a stint. But uh, he bounced on us, y'all. He went out west. (laughs) So he's enjoying the sunshine in California. But, Zorro, let's just get right into it, man, because there's a lot of things that that I could get into. But let's just start at the beginning, man. Um, Sure. You are one of seven kids, right? Where were you in that lineup of kids? I'm third, third to the last. Wow. Okay. Yeah, third, third to the last, and I was raised by a, uh, a single immigrant mother. My mother was from Mexico City, and she raised all seven of us alone without the aid of a father. So, yeah, it was pretty, uh, pretty tough upbringing, pretty difficult. But I look back on it now with great fondness because uh, adversity does one of two things to you: it either crushes you or it makes you really strong. And in my case, it made me really strong, and it made me uh, want to work hard to make something of myself. Uh, everybody responds different to the same things in life. Uh, for whatever reason, I was fortunate that I responded to all the adversity with determination. So it gave me a real fire and a zeal and a lust for life to make make the most of something, make the most of my circumstances, and try to become somebody. Uh, so sometimes when you're impoverished and oppressed, uh, it could work in your benefit because it gives you it gives you a hunger that sometimes you don't get when your life is cushy and easy. Absolutely, um, you know. So where did you where did you grow up? I grew up originally in Compton, California. Okay, uh, as you everybody knows, Compton the world over as the hood, uh, and that was uh, that was I lived there in all of my developmental years. And that is where, uh, those were the neighborhoods where, you know, the music that I grew up listening to in the 60s was, you know, the soul music, man, you know, all yeah. R&B. Uh, wow. my, very fir- my very first concert at uh, seven or eight years old was I got taken to go see Diana Ross and the Supremes and the Temptations <laughs> in concert in Long Beach, and that just rocked my world. Uh, because I was already in Motown freak as a kid. You know, wow. my whole family had all the Motown 45s and all the stuff they played in my neighborhoods was all, you know, uh, soul music. So, uh, and I lo- and I loved it, you know. And it, it, so, it had an imprint on me long before I knew I would be a drummer. Absolutely, that, the, gro- the gro- groove was already in my soul, <laughs> so to speak. You know, no doubt. So, were were any of your siblings uh, musically inspired, or, or were you kind of the 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 lone wolf of the of the pack? Yeah, my and no one, no one actually played an instrument. My mother, uh, uh, you know, had artistic uh, giftings. My mother, when she lived in Mexico City, was an aspiring actress, so she had a, a, a leaning towards Hollywood and music, and and she loved music, and she sang when she was a young, you know, in high school, and she sang in a band and stuff. She sang all just American songs. She loved all of. The, the big band stuff, Frank Sinatra, Glenn Miller, Bing Crosby, all, all that stuff. But so my mother was the only one who really, you know, had any sort of musical. The rest of my siblings, they all just absolutely loved music. They were all huge music lovers. So I grew up in a house where, uh, you know, our age ranges were, uh, were great. I mean, I'm 13 years younger than my oldest brother. So in, in my household, everybody listened to all kinds of different music. So we had soul music in one corner. We had jazz music. We had uh, mariachi music and big band music of rock and roll. My sister loved all the great rock groups of the 60s, you know, the wow. Doors and 
and the Stones. And so, so I grew up listening to literally kind of all kinds of styles of music, okay. which, which, which formed my taste. I didn't know at that time I was going to be a musician. Wow, okay. But having grown up with all of those different influences, uh, certainly when I became a, music, uh, became a musician, I had already been indoctrinated into, Absolutely. you know, all the all the great styles of music, you know. So I'd already loved everything. And then my my second concert when I was twelve, uh, Frank Sinatra. Wow. And that uh, and that changed my life because I loved his music <laughs> and I loved that music of that era. So some people, you know, know me and you think of me, you know, from you know R and B and rock and roll, which is you know what the, a lot of the big gigs I did. But they, uh, but until they play with me, they don't realize that I'm also very versed in jazz and fusion and all the other great styles of music. Because I'm just an all-around musician. I love. I have four thousand CDs in my music collection. <laughs> uh, so I'm uh, I'm over the top about yes. everything. I, I I study everything. I have hundreds of books on music and music history and, and albums and, and DVDs and documentaries. And so I've just always been a very uh, uh, sort of uh, obsessive personality. Right. If I get into something, I gotta have every album by Frank Sinatra or gotcha. Dave Brown or Earth Wind Fire. The I'm not, yeah, I, I have to have it all. And then, and then when people say, "Tell me, you know, the best, you know, three Earth Wind and Fire albums," well, I can only tell you that if I know every single album, and then I can say, well, "I have them all, but these three are the ones you need." Or right. you know, I, I, so I'm a very, I'm a completist in there that way. Go. I love, you know, I love knowing everything about a particular subject and then Absolutely. and then i love share, sharing that with people yeah 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 and you do that very well too we'll get into a little bit of that later so you, you spoke to having siblings that that didn't necessarily play but they were uh music fans and, and your mom yeah. she had uh, uh artistic artistic qualities as well so when you were in when you were in junior high or high school where was it when you first discovered the drums, or when they found you, and um, you knew, okay, I want to, I want to play drums, you know, and, and possibly, did you, you know, when that discovery happened, did you think that you would be doing it professionally at that point, or did that come later as well? Well, a very good question. So, so I would say that the inclination towards rhythm. Uh, was very early on, like even like at that Diana Ross Supremes concert. I remember coming back from that, banging on the back of the car seats and just always pounding out rhythms. So much so that I, I, I was mesmerized by the drumming and the grooves and the feel that I wanted. That I made myself a makeshift ghetto drum set. So I, I got I gathered some uh, Folgers coffee cans, some almond rope cans, yep. some wooden salad spoons, and a couple of Tupperware things. I literally put him in my uh, my radio flyer wagon uh, and and went out onto the Compton Boulevard on the main artery where I lived and put on the transistor radio to Wolfman Jack, which was a soul station in L.A. And I, I'd literally just play along with my hands, things like Grazing, on, Grazing in the Grass by oh Friends of Distinction. Taking me back, and, uh, yeah, yeah, and just and I'd just be banging on it with my hands, but not not knowing that I was going to be a drum set player, but like I was just already drawn to it. And and then we actually had a life change, a major life change. We moved from right, the urban, yeah, we, we moved from the urban, the urban uh, inner cities of LA, of Compton and South Central. We could have had a more drastic life change. And then we, we moved up to Grants Pass, Oregon, which is a little mountain <laughs> town of about 13,000 people. So, so my life went from, from like the streets of Sanford, son, to like Little House on the Prairie oh or the Wal- or the Waltons. It right. was uh, a, a complete culture shock, mm. a very difficult one. Yeah, uh, and I because imagine. I really didn't, as a kid, I really didn't uh, in L.A. growing up in Compton, you know, in a pretty diverse community. I'd say it was more predominantly a black community at that time, but still there was a diverse amount of people. Like you saw people of different ethnicities, right? So we move up to Oregon and it's completely uh, white, lily white. And my mother was Mexican and had a strong right. Mexican accent and dark brown skin. So we weren't exactly well received Absolutely. In, at, at that time of the seventies. So we experienced a lot of racism and a lot of uh, hatred. But at the same time, there were, there were some kind, you know, Christian people from 
churches that sort of loved on us, so it was a mixed mixed feelings. But it was there in Oregon that my mother, to soften the blow of this move from L.A. to, to Grants Pass, Oregon, that my mother uh, scrimped and saved $9.99 for my 10th birthday and bought me a Mickey Mouse drum set from the Sears catalog. Yes, sir. So it was all paper heads. It was just a toy, really. Right. But, uh, and, and, but I got it Christmas morning, and I unleashed the funk on it, and I destroyed it. I destroyed it within a few hours. Yeah, you and, did. You know, paper heads. Because it was cheap. It was <laughs> right. paper heads, but, but it, it kind of set me on fire. And once I connected with that, then I immediately went to the school to see if I could join the school band program. Mm-hmm. And at that time, they only had like a string ensemble. They only had strings. They didn't have drum set or anything like wow. that. It was uh, ele- elementary. Mm-hmm. And uh, so my mother convinced me to join playing the violin. So I didn't really want to, but there were no other instruments and in openings. So I joined playing the violin, and, uh, and, and I didn't have a passion for it. But it put me at least in an in an ensemble situation. Right. And then the next the next year I went uh, the next grade uh, they did have a school band with drummers, but they said they had too many drummers already. Hmm. So I entered a, actually it was the reverse. I entered a talent show in the uh, fifth or sixth grade. I entered a talent show, and uh, there was a band that was performing, and I said uh, I'm a drummer. I never played drums other than the one day for Christmas and destroyed them. <laughs> but I just declared that I was a drummer. And, and I said, I, yeah, I, can, I can, can be your drummer in your band. And they said, oh, do you have a drum set? I said, yeah, yeah, but I didn't. And uh, <laughs> so the, the first day of rehearsals, I uh, they asked, well, where's your drums? And I just said, uh, well, they're in the shop right now getting fixed, but I'll, I'll just play with my hands on the back of this chair and keep time for you guys. So they looked a little disappointed, but I did that. And then the next rehearsal is like, well, where's your drum set? I'm like, man, they're still in the shop. They're still, you know, getting fixed. And so I said, don't worry. I'll just, by my showtime, I'll have them and they'll be back. So I'll just play with my hands. So, of course, on the day, the, the night of the show, of the talent show, I know I'm not going to have any drums. Mm. So I told my I told my brother and, and sisters, I said, I don't know what to do. I, so we we got creative and we drove by some dumpsters. And we, we took an old appliance box that was, you know, like an old washer-dryer box that was mm-hmm. left by the dumpster, broke it down, took it home, and spent all night painting a drum set on the front of it. So we <laughs> we brought that on stage, and That's... I played with my hands on the box that looked like a drum set. Because I said, look, you guys are you Oh, and they said, so what's up, what's up with the drums? And I was like, well... I said, you know, those wing nuts finally came in from Taiwan, but my mother went down to the shop and they closed early. So we didn't have any choice. So I'm just going to have to play this box, but you're used to me playing with my hands. So that's really was my entry into rock and roll. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> playing with my hands on an old Maytag, uh, you know, appliance box. Man, you know, I but I, I applaud your tenacity, man. I mean necessity is definitely the mother of invention and man your brothers and sisters they rallied around you like man this is just what we do this is how we get down yeah. you know uh, what are y'all looking at us like that for this is what we do <laughs> you know? yeah no it was a beautiful thing when i look back on it i just go wow i feel like a, a beautiful touching family moment of absolutely. a family trying to help a kid absolutely you know and that's that's all we had you know so right so that that you know, and then I got so lit up, and I literally, you know, the, the talent show, you know, it was only just, you know, the parents and brothers and sisters forced to attend, and, uh, <laughs> and but man, when I was up there, I was in seventh heaven, and I literally imagined myself playing to millions of people. When they, when they gave me my little drum solo on the box, I imagined that I was in front of crowds of millions, and then, um, and then, so then after that, I went and tried to join the school band, which did have drums. But they said that there were too many drummers already. Mm -hmm. So basically, I was turned down year after year after year after year until uh, so uh, uh, I had a divine appointment when I was 16, still had not uh, played drums or anything. And every year I wanted to be in the band program. They said, it's too many drummers. It's too late. You didn't start. You should have started in the fourth grade or whatever. So I, I gave up. I mean, I never gave up on the dream of it, but I knew I just couldn't be in the band. And right. so when I was 16 at my high school, right. I got an after-school job for two hours after school from like 3.30 to 5.30. And the job was as a janitor. Uh, and, and I was a janitor at my own high school, Uh-oh. cleaning cleaning the toilets, vacuuming. Yeah, oh, I, and, it, <laughs> and it, wasn't, it wasn't a cool job, you know, in high school, cleaning 
the toilets in front of the jocks after the bell rang. Right. And people mocked me and ridiculed me, but the last part of the job was for me to clean the van room. Yeah, it was. And I, I would, knew I would, it. I, I would clean it and vacuum it and put the instruments away, the sheet music away, and no one was ever there. So but for the last 10 minutes before I caught the activity bus home, I would sneak on the drums and just play. I yep. grabbed the sticks that were there and just, I didn't, never had a lesson, but, but, but God gave me an ability that I could play. Mm-hmm. And one day the band director was in his office with his door closed and then came out and caught me drumming and startled me, and so he caught me drumming on the job, not drinking on the job, but he caught me <laughs> drumming on the job. And he said, wait right there, uh, and he looked very serious, and I was afraid I'm going to get fired. He goes and gets another guy, and then and they say, play what you were playing. And I play, and and they looked at each other, and they go, kid, you're a, you, you, have a, you have a great natural sense of rhythm. You're like a rhythmic genius. Where have you been hiding? We need you in all the school bands. And... <laughs> That's how I got in the stage band, the jazz band, the swing choir, the marching band. All of that happened the next semester in the beginning of my uh, uh, sophomore year. And, and it was because it was because I was accidentally discovered by the band director. Mm. So it was like a scene straight out of you know uh, of that movie Goodwill Hunting. You yeah, know, it yeah. Solves all it, the problems on the board. Nobody knows who he is. It's very similar to how uh, Quincy Jones discovered the Brothers Johnson too. Same type of oh, gig, yeah. yeah. Same yeah, type yeah, of gig, yeah. same kind of situation. Uh-huh. You know, he, you know, they were somewhere that they really weren't supposed to be because they were janitors cleaning and were in the studio and you know plinking around. And he heard them, and it was all she wrote. So <laughs> that's pretty cool. Uh, that's right. I, I used to love. I, I was friends with Louis John. And he uh, was a good guy. But anyway. Um, and so that's how it all started. So I was 16. Right. And so w- when I started uh, immediately in the school bands, uh, I remember writing down uh, at 16, I still have the same paper that I wrote out of my dreams and goals. There you go. I still kept it. And, and I wrote down uh, that I was going to make it as a drummer at showbiz. Okay. So from the minute that I started, I envisioned myself Well, doing see, this. And, and, and that's not the first time that you said that. You know, you said that you envisioned, you saw, you you know, you 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 meditated basically. You know, yeah. and and we know as 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 the word says that as a man thinketh, so is he. And yeah, you know, it's kind of like the the world has kind of taken that you know uh, principle of manifestation and kind of done you know their thing with it. But really, that's a that's a biblical principle. You know, that that's you know straight from the Most High. So yeah, you have to see those things before you can actually. Uh, uh, have them come into your natural fruition. So, man, that's that's amazing that you got that early. I had a mother who had faith, and I had a mother who was a dreamer, and um, and so you know you're influenced by things that are around you. So yes. uh, part of, part of it is nature, part of it is nurture, and then then ultimately it comes down to choice because then you just decide I'm going to. Um, and I always tell people, you know, to for a dream to manifest. I mean, it first starts out as a vision mm-hmm. and then and then you've got to uh, you've got to give that dream provision by the hard work and by mm-hmm. what it takes to it's not just a, a vision the vision has to be executed yep. which is where you have to have a strategy and you have to have a plan to execute this vision and that, and, and vi- strategies and visions are executed over long periods of time right. and i was i was willing to do the work and i had been working hard since i was a kid on the streets of compton selling things and just mm-hmm. work in the streets, you know, so I was never afraid of hard work. So, uh, you know, there's a quote that sort of sums up uh, how I was able to succeed in all of my visions and dreams. It's a quote by Mark Twain, mm-hmm. and he said, you know, all that's needed is ignorance and confidence, and with that, success is assured. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's an equal amount of just being ignorant enough to believe you yeah. can do it. yeah. And, you know, ignorant enough to believe that the impossible is possible mm-hmm. and confident enough to just go for it. Right. Because you're so ignorant, you don't realize what you're trying is impossible. Right. But you just, you're just ignorant enough to think that it is. Yes. And that gives you the confidence. So that's kind of Absolutely. That me up. I was, I was ignorant and confident at the same time. So that, and that, went for it. Right. And, and so, yeah, definitely. You know, and so that brings me to, to uh, one of my next questions. You know, uh, you know, I was going to ask you as far as the high school stage band, junior high, and, and, and you just brought all that, you know, you wrapped that up so, so dope, man. It's an awesome, it's an awesome testimony. Um, 
but after high school, you know, what was what was your first? What would you say your first professional gig was? You know, and and yeah. then, and then maybe realizing that hey, I can do this as a as a real profession. Well, I mean, one of the first, uh, uh, one of the first, like when I, I graduated high school. As soon as I graduated, about uh, just you know, just fortuitous, uh, serendipitous luck, or however you want to call it, uh, faith or brought it my way. But I got to audition for uh, a local. Uh, by this time, we had moved to Eugene, Oregon, for my uh, senior year. Mm. Only one year, but Eugene was a bigger town, yeah, college town, so there were more opportunities there. And so uh, I graduated high school, and then when I graduated a couple months later, uh, I found out about a, a, a local band. They were a top-notch show band. They were like one of the best bands in the state of Oregon. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I auditioned for them. They came over to my house and auditioned me. The, the band, the band uh, director liked me, and it was a family act, kind of like the Jacksons mm-hmm. or the Osmond Brothers. And so he liked me enough to say, well, we should come to the house and audition for the rest of the brothers. So I went there and auditioned for them, and then they offered me the gig. So they were like a working show band, very okay. professional, had gigs all over the state, all over clubs, restaurants. But they had had a house gig at Disneyland a couple of years before I joined them. They were like the house band in the Tomorrowland Terrace, which is a very professional a gig that, that that's the stage that rises up out of the ground. It's sort of the Buzz Lightyear area, yeah. you know, in Tomorrowland. But, you know, they had had that professional gig. They did all covers of all the great, you know, R&B stuff and rock stuff. They were just a great cover show band, mm-hmm. but, you know, real apple pie, but did a lot of groove stuff. So, you know, for being 18 and only playing for less than two years, it was a great entry into the world of professional music. And so right. we drive all around Oregon and I do all these gigs with them. Well, I wasn't in the band very long. And a couple months later, they were in the fall of 1980, they were headed to Anaheim to reclaim that gig at Disneyland. <laughs> and I was like, man, I'm 18. I could see myself on that stage rising, you know, five times a day, five shows a day, you know, mm. girls from all over the world watching <laughs> you in the band, you know, right. Wearing your patent leather shoes at the time, you know. Heck yeah. um, but but anyway, so so I was like, I'm in. So I went, you know, we went down to Anaheim after we were polished and tight and auditioned for Disney, and uh, and you know, and the idea was to play, you know, the Magic Kingdom every day. Mm-hmm. Well, for whatever reason, you know, Disney passed on him this time around, and it was devastating because I thought that that was going to be my ticket, man. That I'm going to be at Disneyland and I'm going to be living back in LA where I'm from. Right. And, uh, so that, so once that gig didn't happen, then the, the band was scrambling to survive. So we did all sort of restaurant gigs in Anaheim, everything we could do. And then things really began to just fall apart. So I ended up quitting the band and I told my mother, I said, it looks like I'm going to have to come back to Eugene to regroup, you know, cause it's not working out. And she told me something that, you know, most mothers wouldn't say. She said, "Don't come back." Mm. I said, "What do you What do you mean?" She said, "Don't come back. If you come back, you'll never live out your dream." Wow. She said, "Trust Trust me. I know what I'm saying. I know it's hard, but LA is the only place you're going to have any opportunities because there are none here, wow. and for you to make it big, and you have the talent, you've got the vision. You just have to find a way to stick it out." Yeah. So anyway, so, so I I stayed, and a, a couple of weeks later. I uh, came up with just a audacious plan that <laughs> just, I don't know, it just was dropped in my spirit. So I went to, uh, now remember, I just graduated, so I, I yeah. look like a, a high school student still. Yeah, and so where, uh, are, you staying, yeah. where are you staying, too, you know? Well, my, yeah, my, my sister, and then this is another stroke of luck, my sister was uh, becoming a model and just had signed a big modeling uh, agency contract. So she was renting an apartment with other models of hers in Beverly Hills. <laughs> and so so right when I quit that band, she was, and I was ready to go back to Eugene, my mother said, well, why don't you ask her to tell me to stay? And she said, well, I don't know. It's a long shot because I don't know if she has a or what her situation is, but call your sister Patricia and maybe... Maybe you could go there for a few days. And so I called my sister. She said, sure, you can crash out here and just see what you can make happen here. Mm-hmm. So I, so now I'm in Beverly Hills, and I go, uh, what can I do? I don't, I don't know what to do. So I came up with this idea, and I, I, I went to Beverly Hills High School. Mm-hmm. I took a, a, a boom box, my mm-hmm. ghetto blaster, a practice hat, sticks, wore a pimped-out hat with my sunglasses, 
my silk shirt, and I looked all cool. And I just literally, at lunchtime, sat on the lawn, pranked some earth, wind, and fire, and I just figured I'm just going to play in the middle of the lawn at lunchtime. Mm-hmm. If there's any musicians, they're probably going to go, who's this cat? Right. You know, and, and uh, it's bringing attention to myself. So I sat on the lawn, jamming my earth, wind, and fire, and in 10 minutes, two guys came up to me and asked me if I was new there. Well, I didn't know what to say. You know, I didn't want to say I was sitting on the lawn, so you didn't notice me, so I said, yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I just I just uh, just transferred here from Eugene or whatever. So right. I pretended like I was a new student there. And the two the the uh, one of the kids that I met was a kid named Kennedy, and uh, he never told me what his last name was. And so every day I uh, meet Kennedy around lunchtime by the pool and talk music, and we drive around L.A. and West L.A. And then one day he took me after knowing him a couple of months. One day he took me up to his dad's house. Well, his dad happened to be Barry Gordy, the founder of Motown, wow. my all-time favorite record label. So Man. all of a sudden, I'm up at the Gordy Mansion every day. And then the other kid that I met on the lawn that day who came up to me was Lenny Kravitz. And, <laughs> and, Lenny was, and Lenny was a student there. And so by me sitting on the lawn there that day with that audacious plan, mm. uh, I, I met two guys that then took a lap to me and loved my drumming and started... Right dialing me in and wanted me in their hands and wanted me to record with them and uh, so that, and I continued to go to school every day like I was a student <laughs> and I just and this was 1980 low security practically no security there was only like a couple of security guards but it was now I went back to the school the other day to look at it there's a big giant fence all around it Man. super tall looks like looks like a prison now I mean it's still yeah. a beautiful campus but it's all enclosed like nobody could do what I did anymore um, right. It was a different time then, yes, a sir. very lax, easy time, and uh, and so that's that's how I then I just ended up staying in L.A. and they started connecting me to different things, mm-hmm. and uh, and then I and I decided to uh, and then I met you know the drummer from Earthland and Fire, Ralph Johnson, who Ralph? became my okay. friend and teacher. Well, here, here let's 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 peel let's peel back just a hair here because. You know, people, you know, that's what I was going to say early on, but I, I held it for this this perfect moment. Okay, so you're hanging out in the lawn. You don't go to school there, but you're hanging out there looking dope, playing music, and, and, and Kennedy Gordy and Lenny Kravitz end up becoming your your buddies and then them embracing you and, and, and sharing a little bit of their musical world with you, etc., etc. Now, we all know that you played with Lenny, so tell us real briefly how did that actually come about, you know, after you guys formed the, the, the relationship. Yeah, because we've seen the videos, we've seen the concert footage, so, you know, tell us tell us how that worked out. Well, yeah, so basically, so this is like 1980, right? So, yeah. uh, you know, this is uh, about nine years before Lenny would have become a solo artist on his own, you know, and it was about five years before I scored the gig with New Edition. So Lenny and I, during this time, Teddy and I, we were just all you know, young musicians pursuing their dream with all they had. So both of them would dial me in and tell everybody in the world about me because they loved me and my drumming. And so they would say, you got to gotta have Z, you got to go. So they, you know, and then I met some other musicians at Beverly Hills High as well, because it was Beverly Hills High, not Hollywood. But I met some other, you know, young up and coming musicians that were serious. And these guys were more like your jazz guys doing all the casual bar mitzvahs and parties. And so between all of these friends of mine, they got me working, and and then I actually, uh, after studying with Ralph, uh, you know, he was like, "Man, you know, you, you got it going on, whatever." Uh, and, but you know, maybe maybe the next step is like you know, music college. So I went off to Berkeley College of Music for a year, and I studied at Berkeley. And then after I came back from Berkeley, like I was a whole other band, and then that's when. Ralph started dialing me into other local projects of groups he was producing. But eventually, and eventually by 83, uh, that led to him recommending me to Philip Bailey of Earth, Wind and Fire, uh, you know, because Ralph, Ralph was doing the gig and he goes, I can't do it anymore. He goes, but you'd be perfect for it. You can kill that gig. And of course, I have to preface this with saying, I literally, my favorite band in the world is Urban and Fire. And when I was a kid, I used to literally have daydreams that I'd be meeting them on a plane, we'd be hanging out, yes, and, and they're gonna love me. I, I literally would just envision it, you know? And uh, and then all of a sudden, Ralph recommends me. 
and, you know, all the best guys in the world are the band, so I'm really winning over my head. It's like Paul Jackson Jr. on guitar and James Jamerson Jr. on bass. It's all these L.A. studio legends, and it's me, this young kid who's like, you know, 20 years old or 21 years old with not really that much experience because I never told them I'd only been playing since I was 16 or 17. Mm -hmm. I just figured, let the music speak for itself. I don't want to have any pre... But they liked me, they dug me, and so that gave me a huge boost in confidence. Like, I'm... And when I used to play with Thorpe, I'd be listening to him, you know, and, and the monitor's going, I am listening to the voice that I've listened to all my life, and now it's in my ear, you know, and now I'm hearing it. So it was, it was just a super high. So I'm that's sure. like 83. Yeah, and then I'm starting to play with a bunch of different people and record with different people. And then in 85, Lenny Kravitz, who's, you know, been also struggling as a musician to find his way, he had turned down many different record deals until they were right. He was... And anyway, he found out, uh, he called me one night and said, I need you to come to my house after your gig. I said, look for He goes, I'll surprise you when you get here. So I come to his house, three in the morning. He says, tomorrow you have an audition for New Edition. You know, and, uh, wow. and so, so the next day we woke up and we drove into, because Lenny lived in Baldwin Hills, which is an affluent black community in right. LA, you know. Uh, and anyway, so, so Lenny uh, and I went down and we auditioned together. Most people don't know this, but Lenny auditioned for the gig on guitar, okay. and I auditioned for it on the drums. And Lenny killed it on guitar, but he didn't have the right gear and equipment. So and it was a it was a very rigorous audition because they had a lot of uh, guys trying out for it. Yeah. When he told imagine. me about it, I thought I was the only one. I, I was like, delusion. <laughs> it was just me. LA. Yeah, I mean, I was just like, yeah, he was like, I got I got an audition for it. I talked to the managers about it. I'm thinking it's just me, you know, because you talk to the managers. And it's like a cattle call. And, yeah. like, and then there's all these top dudes like John Robinson and all these big name guys. But I'm just like a kid. I'm going, oh my God, I'm never going to beat these guys out of it. But anyway, they they uh, they had called. The first, we left there. I didn't feel I did so well. And then, strangely enough, they had callbacks. They called me back. Then they, after that, then they wanted to see if I was playing live anywhere so they could see me. Mm-hmm. Well, they saw me in some cover band in LA that was really, really good. And they happened to be playing Cool It Now, which was one of New Edition's hits. Mm-hmm. And so they, they, they got to see me play one of their songs. But anyway, after that, another couple round of auditions. And somehow, by God's grace, I got the gig. Yeah. But then Lenny, then Lenny didn't get the gig. Mm-hmm. So it was a real bummer because our dream was to like do it together. Absolutely. man. You know, so uh, so here we are, 85. I got the, the dream gig, New Edition's huge, or selling out everywhere. And then we're finally playing in L.A. So I invite Lenny, of course, my bro, to the concert. Yeah. And Kennedy Gordy, who at this time has become Rockwell and, and already had a hit record that I got <laughs> yes, to play sir. on with him. And uh, so they both come to the show. Lenny backstage meets Lisa Bonet, who happens to be uh, just attending the concert. Mm-hmm. So uh, those two click. A couple of years later, he marries Lisa, and and they, at that time they're calling him Romeo Blues, his nickname. Right. And I'm touring that. with, yeah, I'm touring with New Edition everywhere. And then I joined Bobby Brown, who Bobby is a member of New Edition. Absolutely. And Bobby goes solo and asks me to join him. I joined him for the King of Stage album and tour. And then the next time I joined him again, the Don't Be Cruel, and the thing blows up. Right. Like 13 million albums sold. He's the biggest thing in pop music. Absolutely. I do all the videos. So now Bobby's, you know, the biggest thing in music. And then Lenny just gets a record deal in 89 right. and is asking me to join his band, you know, which we'd always wanted to be together. So when I finished up with Bobby, then I joined my friend Lenny. So really in my career, it's very interesting that all the people that I joined and played with were people that I kind of placed bets on. Like, I believed in them. Like when mm-hmm. Bobby asked me to join him when he went solo from New Edition, no one knew if he would ever hit or flop like a lot of solo right. singers do. But but I loved Bobby and believed in him, and he loved me and treated me great. And so I said, I'm going to join him. And then the same thing with Lenny. You know, when uh, Lenny's, you know, you know, I, I'm already, you know, uh, playing with Bobby. I'm in all the magazines. I'm in the drummer magazines, the right. team magazines, and so so. Uh, but a lot of people don't realize is when I joined Lenny. It was like a step down because I was already with Bobby, who was huge, and Lenny was untried. Nobody knew <laughs> that he would make it either. Right. He was just my friend Lenny, who I'm going to join his band because he's been my bro. He's always helped me, and now I'm going to help him. Yes. And then, of course, he hit and then won all kinds of Grammys, and then uh, and then I spent years touring with him. 
And then it just went on and on from there. And then I started touring with a French pop star named Vanessa Paradis, who was Johnny mm-hmm. Depp's uh, 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 girlfriend that became, you know, his girlfriend and wife, effectively, for 20 years. And then I started touring with Frankie Valli in the Four Seasons and Joey Watley and, and tons and tons of people. And then eventually I'd get back with Lenny whenever I was available because there was a long stint where I wasn't. And, uh, yeah, so it's been, this has been like a 40-year journey, man. Yes. It started in 1980, and it's 2020. Right, <laughs> and, right. Uh, and, and, and it took about, you know, it took a few years in L.A. before, you know, I was working immediately just playing local gigs, mm-hmm. you know, doing everything under the sun. You know, club gigs, bar gigs, jazz gigs, bar mitzvahs, recording gigs, demos, whatever I could get my hands on. That was all shaping me. It was all grooming me, and it was all training. And then, you know, then I worked really, really hard on the road and in the studio with all those guys, mm-hmm. uh, trying to do the best work I could. And then at that same time, I had other dreams and visions of, of writing books, of, right. of writing drum which you, books. Which you did. You did. You, yeah. You wrote you, two that I know of anyway, the, the big gig, the big picture, and then um, Soar, right? Yeah, well, I wrote... The first books that I wrote uh, was my vision and dream of writing a book about the history of R&B drumming mm-hmm. and, and, and paying homage to all the great drummers of R&B. So it took me about 10 years that I wrote a book called The Commandments of R&B Drumming. Okay. And it was the most, the most in-depth book ever written on the history of R&B drummers with pictures, discography, the grooves, exercises. Wow. And then it won awards all over the world as best educational book. And that opened up the whole world to me as a clinician. I started doing clinics all over the world, sharing all of these grooves and history and feels. And that really took off and exploded Amazing. in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that was another vision that I had that I wrote down as a kid. Like, I want to write a book about R&B drummers. I wrote out that vision before I knew anything about R&B drummers. I just knew I loved music. Mm-hmm. I didn't know who the drummers were. And, but I knew that there weren't... There were books on, like... There were, jazz was always respected. Right. And rock got all the notoriety. Yep. But R&B music and musicians were kind of like the bastard stepchild of the music. Absolutely. Kids. Nobody knew who they were. Nobody gave them credit. It wasn't right. like anybody cared at that time. Right. So I always wanted to pay honor to that stuff. And then I did. And it actually helped a lot of those drummers come out of the woodworks. And all of a sudden, they began to get endorsements, mm-hmm. clinics. I'm talking about the James Brown drummers. Yeah, Clyde the, Stubblefield. The, the Motown and... drummers. Those yeah. were all my friends, and, and it was really awesome that uh, a vision that God gave me about this book actually helped them, and it made me feel so good because all of a sudden people, all of a sudden people started taking interest in it, and it grew, and there were more documentaries. And uh, but my book was one of the first things. It was the first thing that ever came out that really honored the R&B drumming. And then I wrote a, a few more after that about R&B stuff. Amazing. Tell us again the, the title of that first book again. It's called The Commandments of R&B Drumming, A Comprehensive Guide to Soul, Funk, and Hip Hop. And I'm going to get still, that book, you know, and I don't even play the drums, but I love the Well, drums. you know, it's funny. You know? A lot of people who didn't play drums bought that book because it's filled with, like, the history of it and the right. so there's pictures of all the different drummers and the, the, the album covers and the maps of the, the, the history and, and, and the evolution of the groove and so like mm-hmm. I read books on bass players and guitar players and anything because the history is intertwined it's not right. like these are solo history they're not Absolutely. connected to the other instruments Absolutely. you know and so I anytime there was a book on like bass players and the history or guitar or keyboard I got all that stuff because then you'd hear them talk about the drummers and the records. And uh, mm. so, yeah, a lot of people have bought my Commandments of R&B Drumming book. Then I did another one with a partner of mine named Daniel Glass. Then we did one tracing the earlier periods called the Commandments of Early Rhythm and Blues. I mean, then we went into the blues, and the gospel, and the, all the early stuff that led wow. to R&B. And these were monstrous projects, taking eight or ten years, each one of them. <laughs> And, uh, and then I wrote a book called The Big Gig, right. Big Picture Thinking for Success, which was, again, uh, when I was 18 in L.A. struggling, I was looking for a book about, from a musician who had made it about how do you, the business of being a musician, how do you make it as a player? Right. Not in a band, but how does a player get to play with famous people? And there was no book. And so I told myself, one day I'm going to write that book when I live it myself. So in 1985, when I was on tour with the new edition, and I'd become like a teen pinup star in all those magazines, 
I was in, I was in, I was black teen centerfold of the bus, white teen centerfold of the bus. Check it out, Joe. Don't have me bus. going back to get those archives, yeah. I was everyday people. I, I was everything to everybody. So I was like, I was the happiest kid in the world because, you know, as a kid, I grew up in Compton. When I lived in Oregon, I never fit in there. Right. So now I get to be in magazines where everybody's embracing me as their own, <laughs> which is hilarious. <laughs> but, uh, but, but out of that, I got to write articles for a big magazine, a big teen magazine, like like Ride On and Fresh. Mm-hmm. And I wrote an article called Zorro's Show Business Tips in 85. And that became the skeletal structure that would eventually become the big gig, which was a 440-page motivational book on how to live out your dream as a musician. It still sells well every year. It's critically acclaimed. It's on Amazon, it's in Barnes & Noble. But that book was a, about a 30-year journey. And it has become like a standard in the industry. Then, you know, uh, four years ago, I wrote a book called Soar, which is a book on how to uh, live, you know, nine proven keys for uh, unlocking your limitless potential. So it's really a book about how to discover your talent, how to develop it, so that you can deploy it. And uh, and now I am finishing up, this is about a 40-year journey, I am finishing up uh, something that's taken me the most of my life, I'm finishing up my memoir about my life story, wow. which which is way more in-depth than what I'm giving you on this podcast. Well, absolutely, uh, and, and understandably so, you know. And, yeah. And, and, and before you say anything else, I just want to let the listening audience know that that Zorro is is not only a proficient, uh, uh, highly skilled professional drummer. I mean, he embodies, you know, the rock star. I mean, he is a star. He's a star. He is probably the the first rock star drummer that we, you know, that that my friends and I recognize as we were. Uh, you know, pursuing our music, you know, our music goals and passions. So, if you guys have never really, you know, checked out Zorro, man, you guys need to do yourself a favor and get into it because this guy is someone who who not only served the music well, but he 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 understood the whole rock star vibe of it too, the whole celebrity side of it, and that's those are some of the things. You know, sometimes, you know, I mean, they carry a lot of weight. So, you know, it's not just the playing. You know, of course, you've got to be able to do that. But, man, there's a whole other side of it, too. That's, you know, that's the whole the image, you know, the whole rock star persona. You know, even if you're not living a debaucherous lifestyle, you know, and that, you know, that's classic. You know, if you want to say that. But anyway, this man is a star. So I just had to say that before before we moved on. Well, that's super nice. And if anybody wants to, they can go to my website, which is just, and Zorro is spelled with one R, Z-O-R-O. The website is ZorroTheDrummer.com. And if you Google Zorro the Drummer on YouTube, there's a tremendous amount of stuff of me playing and speaking and teaching. There's loads of stuff out on the, out on the internet. But yeah, no, it's been a, it's been a fun journey. I've, I've, I've loved, uh, I've always loved fashion and style mm-hmm. and image as much as I've loved playing music. Absolutely. So all, all of that stuff was just a natural extension of who I was. It wasn't contrived. It was just my mother was a very stylish woman, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, uh, and so I picked up on a lot of the way that, that, that she had style, and that just became my style. And I always enjoyed, you know, I enjoyed music by great people. But let's face it, like... There was a lot more to Elvis Presley, Frank Sinatra, and Michael Jackson than just their mere singing talent. Right. These 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 people were stylish, man. They had a vibe. Absolutely. They had an image. They had a you know, Frank Sinatra was cool and smooth and you know and, and Elvis was, was cool and, and Michael Jackson was cool. And that was besides their singing. And so we're attracted to all of those elements when we when we decide that we like an artist, it's it's, it's the whole package, you know. Yes. So I, I I always for me it was very natural because it was just I I, I love image and I love there's mm-hmm. a, there's an artistic expre- expression just the way you dress and your vibe together, Absolutely. you know. And some some musicians are just purely musicians and they don't have an interest or they're super plain, but they're great players, but they don't have that other side. Then there are some like, like a Bootsy or a Sly Stone, Come on, you man. know, or Maurice White, you know, uh, Maurice White was more than just the music's great. He had a vision of what he wanted that band to feel and look yes, like sir. and the images that he portrayed, you know, gave it a very sort of mystical, otherworldly feel to it. 
you know, and, and that also is part of what makes a, a group, you know, work. So Absolutely. yeah, I just, I just, I just enjoyed all that stuff and it was fun for me. Well, let me let me ask you this before before we let you get out of here because man, I, yeah. see, I told you I could we we could be on here for two hours and not oh, even oh, I get it, no, I, I absolutely get it. Yeah, I had fun. But, but um, you know, you've you've done a lot, you know, in in the uh, in the way of uh, you know playing with some of the some of the world's uh, biggest artists, you know, most iconic artists of our time, you know, and and then even. Your, your books and your teaching your 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 clinics and things of that nature just you give you know there's also another side of you too that you're very much into um, mentorship of, of young men and um, uh, and so I'll kind of get into that a little bit and maybe share why you have such a big heart you know uh, for young men well it, it comes from uh, you know I believe my background as a child, when you grow up without a father and you grow up with very few people who believe in you or so into you, and then you meet a few that do, then it kind of changes your life. And so I was fortunate that though, even though I didn't have what I wanted, which every boy wants, you, you, the, 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 in a perfect world, every, every boy has a great father to teach him what it is to be a man, but we don't live in a perfect world. And that's now even more rarely the case than it is common. But uh, I certainly wanted that like any other kid, but I didn't have that. But I felt like God was faithful and provided people along the way who watered me here and there. And so I belonged to the Big Brother, Big Sister program between like 10 and 14. Okay. And I had a big brother in the program uh, and, and who really sewed into me. And these were the people that took me to my, it was him and his wife took me to my first football game, my first pizza, my first Chinese food. Like we could wow. afford those things. So they poured into me. Ironically, it was in their living room. Their their son was a drummer. And when I was 12, one day, I just sort of banged on his drums. Uh, he had a real set of drums. Mm. He was like in his 20s. Okay. But before before they passed away, they sent me this Super 8 footage that I had never seen my whole life. It was me banging on his drums at 12. And I was like, oh, my God, it was like prophetic. I didn't even know that it existed. I didn't wow. even know that I, I don't remember doing it. Wow. But it was like a treasure because it was four years before I would ever really play. Mm. But anyway, there was there's been people along my path, ministers and pastors. There's a pastor of a church that I went to in Grants Pass, a Baptist church who bought me shoes so I could go to a church summer camp that changed my life. Wow. There's different people who, who invested in me, whether it was for an hour, a day, or a month. Then later it was guys like Ralph Johnson who believed in me. You know, so I've always had this desire to to pay it forward, and it comes out of my um, my Christian background, which is this philosophy that I think about every day, you know. Uh, something people should ask themselves every day is, like, whose life is getting better because I'm alive? Mm -hmm. You know, wh whose life's gotten better because I'm here? Because you can be very successful, uh, and there are a lot of people in this world that have succeeded at accomplishing all the same visions and dreams that I've had, and that's fine, but the important thing is, like, but who's benefited from it besides that person? Right. Like, who, who who has gotten better? Who's gotten chances and opportunities to grow because you succeeded? Absolutely. Because if it's just been a journey of self, you eventually will self-destruct. Mm -hmm. And there's no satisfaction in just self. There's only satisfaction in serving. And mm -hmm. that's why people in Hollywood that only live to please themselves and serve themselves and live for the flesh, they end up committing suicide. They end up unhappy. They end up miserable because... We were not created to just serve ourselves. It's a very empty, shallow, vain existence. We were created to serve other people. So I found my identity in serving and not in being served. And I've been this way my whole entire career. This is not a new thing. Mm -hmm. But I've developed uh, as a, I'm a spokesperson for Big Brother, Big Sister. I'm a spokesperson for Compassion International. I speak all over the world uh, at fatherhood conferences. I speak at uh, women's conferences about the power of a mother's love. I speak at churches. I speak at high schools. And, and I'm sharing life principles on mm -hmm. how, to, how to achieve what you're here put on the planet to do. And then most importantly, what do you do with it once you've achieved it? In, in other words, how do you use that to benefit other people? Because that's really the big picture. And even in the Big Gig book, right. you know, I share that. You know, the Big Gig is your life. 
it's not just any a particular gig. Yes, I've done a lot of big gigs, but that doesn't that doesn't add up to the sum total of my life. The sum total of my life right. is how I've treated people, how I've encouraged people, how I've helped people, how I've taught people, how I've blessed people. Because whatever you don't give away will die with you, which is why I've always right. tried to give away encouragement, inspiration, knowledge, friendship, help in whatever way I can, because that's really living for the higher calling and the higher purpose. And I have met lots of people. I mean, I traveled with Paul Allen, the fourth richest guy in the world, the co-founder of Microsoft. So I have literally been around the richest people and the most famous people in the world. And I have learned that the people that don't have a purpose bigger than just the acquisition of fame, wealth, sex, drugs, rock and roll, end up burning out, end up miserable because they thought all those things would fulfill an empty place in their soul, which it does not. Uh, The only thing that fulfills that, in my opinion, the only thing that fulfills that empty place in your soul is the spirit of the living God himself. And anything you try Mm -hmm. to fill it with that's earthly, it just never makes you feel content. And that's why people are always longing for another experience. So they try another drug or they try another uh, sexual partner or another accomplishment, but then in the end, that still doesn't fill the void, because I believe right. that God made each of us with an empty place in our soul that could only be filled with Him. So I've just sort of learned to fill that void with the Lord, and that's given me the purpose to then serve humanity and make a difference with the gifts He gave me. All we can do is use what He's given us. He's given me a drumming gift, a speaking gift, a teaching gift, and a writing gift. That's it. Those are the four things that I'm good at. But I've worked really, really hard to excel at each one with a, with a bigger purpose, which is how many people can I impact within my lifespan. And then I try to live each day as if it were my last, giving my all to everything, because then one day it will be my last, and then it'll be true. You know, uh, you know so, so that's, that's, that's sort of the philosophy of why I do what I do and what compels me and what drives me. Because it's got to be more than just us, because you get bored after a while, just another gold record or another Grammy or another Oscar. If you don't have, if you're not certain, you know, I'll give you, we can end with this story. Yesterday, I got an email, uh, and it was super long. And you know how, like, it's like the person, like, it's like I, I look at people and go, make white space your friend in an email. <laughs> Don't be afraid of white space. <laughs> you know what I mean? If it's just text for pages, yeah. you're just going, oh my God, it's like it's overwhelming and your eye can't breathe and you're just going, but anyway, this person just sent like the, maybe the longest email I ever got. And uh, at first I'm like, what in the world? You know, and it started off and it was this woman and, and the, and then the, inside the, the, the title of the email was, please help take my daughter. You know, the, I love the email in the there. And so it got at my attention that, uh, you know, I started reading it. And basically a story of the, her daughter was born with this congenital heart disease, something that's super rare. I don't even know how to pronounce it. But basically this girl's been through a living hell. And she's mm-hmm. 13 years old and she's been in and out of hospitals. Her life's been just a, a, a horror. And so, I mean, that's what probably the first 10 pages was just about. And I'm going like, I'm thinking, so... What what's the punchline? What if, where do I come into this whole thing? What, what why is she right. emailing me? Like what is what can I do? What does she want? And then finally, you know, after ten pages of this horrific stuff, uh, she, she gets to the point. She goes, "I heard you speak somewhere, and I bought your book Sore, and I gave it to my daughter. Her name is Faith, and she's thirteen years old, and she she just doesn't like life. But but when I, she started reading your book." And all of a sudden, she starts perking up, and she starts. She's interested in life again, and she's interested in anything about you. And and and, and when I talk about you or we watch something of you on YouTube, she lights up. And there's something about you that that's just she's attracted to that is giving her a hope and a joy. And she she's learning to play drums. And so, is there any way? And she lives in the area. I live in the Sacramento area now. And she lives in the area, and so she said, is there any way you could send my daughter a letter or an autographed copy of the book or whatever? So first of all, i got to be honest. When I'm reading the email, I'm starting to well up. I'm starting to tear up and go, like, this is, this is touching me, overwhelming me. And this is before I knew what she wanted from me. And then when I realized that it was something I could facilitate, my spirit got really alive and joyful. And I, got, I said, I hope she got her phone number there somewhere. I hope I could get in touch with her. So her number was there on the bottom. And and I called her, 
and uh, I left her a message, and then uh, and then I decided an hour or two later I'd try calling again. She answered the phone. Well, according to her, she was blown away that I read the email, blown away that I called her. She did, she wasn't expecting yeah. a response. <laughs> and then I said, well, when is your little girl's birthday? And she goes, well, it's August uh, 13th, or uh, it's on Thursday. I said, mm-hmm. well, I said, well, great. Why don't why don't I plan to surprise her some? Why don't you meet me at this ice cream shop, and uh, I'll plan to surprise her, and I'll bring her uh, all my stuff, my books, a set of my sticks, posters, <laughs> and oh, and whatever. I I've got this this uh, drum that I endorse called the walkabout drum, which is like a, a hand drum you play like a, a djembe, but it looks like a guitar. Anyway, I'm going to surprise her and just bring her like this total care package. Uh, because when she said that that book and anything about you is bringing her to life, I'm like, this is the greatest use of my life, the greatest use of my platform. And there's a quote by a guy named William James who said, the greatest use of life is to spend it on something that far outlasts it. The greatest use of life is to spend it on something that far outlasts it. So when you sow into other people and you build into other people, you know, that's going to go on for eternity. She's going to live longer yeah. than me, more than likely. And the hundreds Absolutely. of thousands of people that I've sewn into or spoken to or mentored to or whatever, through my books, through my drumming, through my encounters with me, that is sewing it. That is something that's going to outlast me. And then they're going to pour to the next person. So when I was driving around, I just really got the most excited feeling. And that's what it means when it says it is better to give than to receive. Because mm. I've received a lot of things, and they've been joyful, and they've been blessings to get sure. them. But when I'm able to do something like that for that little girl mm-hmm. and the excitement, and I've done this. this is I'm not trying to boast in any of this. I'm just trying to say this is how I live. This is how I choose to lead. And I've always done this. And I've done this so many times I can't even remember it. And I'm not keeping track or keeping score. It's just the way that I live. But when I do, it brings me this incredible, indescribable joy. And it really is true that it's more blessed to give than to receive. Because there's something you get in your soul when you give that you can't get only from when when you receive. Because when you receive, it tends to be more of a fleshly joy. When you give, it turns to be more of a spiritual joy that is indescribable but it lights your soul alive and on fire and nothing else in this world can really do that except that joy of giving. And so I, and I said to God, I said, what a great, what a great gift you've given me that whatever you've given me, this drumming gift, this writing gift, this encouraging gift, that mm-hmm. it's something that, that is bringing this girl to life and she's never even met me. And now when she meets me, that I'm going to try to give her some drum lessons, figure out how to get her a drum set. She doesn't know any of this, right. but this is the joy mm-hmm. of living. So that's how I roll, yes. and, you know, that's it. and it's, uh, that's and it's it. not in any way where I'm boasting and saying, look how awesome I am. I said, this is how I live. These are the choices I made. And these are the reasons I believe right. uh, in those, those uh, Christian benevolent philosophies. And this is what drives mm-hmm. me. And this is what gives me joy that none of my uh, regular life accomplishments have been able to do. Uh, not, not, as, gotcha. not in the way that, that you know, lighting this 13 year old girl does for me. There's no, there's no Grammy, no video, no anything that's done what this does to my soul. And, and that's what people are longing for. They're longing to be used or longing to be a purpose or longing to serve. They just don't know. it. Absolutely. And they may not know that, no. but man, you wrap that up so eloquently, man. And you know what, you know, there's a lot of good stuff in there. There's a lot of good stuff in there, man. And, um, without, without being preachy, man, you preached a whole sermon. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, well, there's um, a, I, I'm going to, I'm going to give you one last quote. Uh, um, uh, Saint, just like a preacher. Yeah, this Saint, is, I think this is our third close. St. <laughs> Francis of Assisi said this. He goes, by all means, preach the gospel. And if necessary, use words. In other words, just live it, man. Just just live it. Uh, by, by the example that I'm trying to live with, that that is, by living that example, that is the gospel. You're walking in love. Man. You're showing people who Jesus is through the work, through the deeds that you do. And that's why he said, by all means, preach the gospel. If necessary, use words. I mean, that's, that's dope. You know what I mean? <laughs> 
Well, hey, that's our time for the Tidy Funk Show today, man. And it's been my pleasure to have the man, the myth, the legend, Zorro, the drummer. Man, thanks so much for, for giving me some of your time today and sharing with the folks, man. And, and dude, we're definitely going to have to do it again. Well, yeah, Tony, thank you. And it's an honor and a privilege. You're one of the funkiest bass players alive, one of the nicest guys alive, great musician, great person, great servant. And uh, I'm really proud of you for starting this podcast. I'm proud of you for following that vision and dream. And I just pray blessings and love over you, man, and everything you do with your family, that you'll prosper, and that God will really reward you for everything you've done. So thank you, my friend. Right on, man. Hey, well, y'all, check it out. We'll see you next time on the Tidy Funk Show. And remember, we want the funk. That's right. We're out of here. God bless. Bye-bye. <laughs> Boom,